Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of The Nuclear View. It is the roundtable discussion of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. And of course, sometimes, as some of our listeners have told me, it can get uh, a little heated because we don't always perfectly agree, which is what sort of makes it interesting. And today, I think we've got a a very, I think it's going to be entertaining episode where we're going to talk about myths of the disarmament community. And today, not only do we have Curtis McGiffin, who is always excellent, but Peter Husey is standing in for Jim Petrosky. Jim's out of town. Peter's standing in. And as you know, most of you know, Peter Husey is what we like to call a legend. And uh, he's a legend not only in his mind, but in our minds as well. He is one of the institutions of D.C. And as you know, if you've ever been to one of his conferences or if you've ever read some of his really, you know, every time I read Peter's work, I learn something because he always says something I didn't know before because, his, you know, he's he's got 40 years of experience in this business in Washington and he was been there, done that. So with that. So thanks for being here, Peter. It's, uh, it's good to see you. Let me offer the first myth to you, Curtis. Well, thanks, Adam. And uh, Peter, so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Uh, and, and let me add to Adam, every time I read your stuff, um, I usually have it, half of the, the article is yellow with highlighter. Uh, and uh, uh, it really shapes where we are. I don't know how you've been in the business for 40 years because you don't look like day over 50. So uh, you must have started really, really young. <laughs> I'm actually 70. I'm 72 years old. No. Yes. Well, you, fantastic. I, I hope to be still doing this in a couple of years when I reach 72. So uh, <laughs> thanks so much for fighting this fight uh, for so long. Um, Adam, I think, uh, uh, you know, nuclear myth busting is something that's always been uh, near and dear to my heart uh, because, you know, that myths are sort of the, the, the nice way of saying we need to battle some of the disinformation or misinformation um, out there when we talk about these things. And, and look, we've had podcasts in the past that have, have talked about some myths. And as you mentioned last week, we had a, a stunningly fantastic podcast on the, on the cost uh, of nuclear uh, deterrence and, 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 and uh, you know, just to, uh, you know, uh, sort of give away the, the plot uh, for last week, uh, they're cheap in comparison to everything else. So I encourage our listeners to, to check out last week's uh, podcast. I'm going to start off today with a myth uh, that the American people uh, dislike nuclear weapons, hate them, fear them, think we should do away with them um, as a matter of... Um, maybe ethics or morals or, or any of these sorts of things. I'm going to reach back uh, to a survey that was con- 
that was conducted in 2021. I know that's a year or two ago, but you know, they don't do these surveys every year. This is actually in the survey world, pretty, it's uh, recent, pretty recent. Uh, and this survey was crafted by, um, uh, and sponsored by the Mitchell Institute, uh, the National Security and Nuclear Deterrence Public Opinion Research. Uh, and the results are, are quite stunning, in my opinion. Um, and, and I wanted to share this with you. Uh, the, the survey uh, mimics uh, the 2020 election uh, demographics and, um, and mixes of voters, if you will. And so I wanted to, uh, to, to kind of reiterate just um, they went to great lengths to make the survey representative of the 2020 election cycle of uh, presidential election cycle. So I think it adds credibility to, um, to the, uh, to the survey. Let me first say, mention the startup here and what did Americans in this survey say that they feared the most? And there were a number of op of, of offers and I'm, in the interest of time, I'm not going to go through them all. What I am going to say here is, is that the number one fear at the time, this is 2021, um, by America, by the American surveyed here was cyber attack by another nation. And that was 95 to five, right? 95% uh, felt this was the number one thing they feared versus 5% who didn't fear it at all. Um, and then ranked several down is the fear of nuclear attack by another nation. Uh, the essence of our deterrence, right? And that was 87 to 13. 87% in 2021 feared um, or were concerned, maybe it's a better word, I don't want to overplay it, concerned about the possibility of nuclear attack by another nation. So this begins to sort of lay out where they are uh, looking at overall. Um, other interesting results here was that 75% um, of those um, those surveyed, which are broken out between Democrat and Republican voters, but I'm just giving you the, the average totals, um, felt that military superiority by 75% made them feel more safe. And, uh, and when we talk about um, uh, the, 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 in, the, the issue of spending and whether or not we should increase um, and whether or not those increases in spending increased your sense of security, that was 69% agreed with that sentiment. So the, the Americans feel that their defense spending is, is, is pretty good, you know, that, 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 that they're getting something. But here's the big one, right? So when asked the question, do you agree with the following statement? America's nuclear deterrence capability is critical to our national safety and security, and it should be one of the highest priorities of the Department of Defense. That came down to 91% either agreed or strongly agreed with that statement. And in fact, 54% strongly agreed. So 54% in any majority is pretty good in America. So this is um, um, a, a pretty big deal uh, as to how Americans feel about nuclear spending. When asked about whether or not the modernization of the nuclear enterprise protects uh, America against global threats, the average response with regard to ICBMs playing a positive role in that was 65%. Then when they're shown a picture from the Washington Post back in 2021 of the, uh, of, of the human 
site in China where they're building 100 new missile silos and then asked the same question, the results changed slightly. They increased from 65% to 67%, saying that, yep, we need to modernize the ICBM uh, now that I know that there's a threat out there. And this tells me that that, that the American uh, people, when, when shown uh, the, the, the real threat, when they're trusted with the information, that they can make very rational uh, decisions about their security and and safety. 81% felt that spending on nuclear modernization and nuclear of the, of the capabilities were justified. And um, the last one here that I wanted to share uh, was that uh, replacing the ICBMs with, with more modern systems, um, 56% said that it made them feel uh, much more safe safer while 18% made them feel less. So this is, to my mind, a big deal to, to sort of burst this argument that the American people don't like or abhor our nuclear uh, capability. So Mythbusters, number one myth busted, Americans are in fact supportive of the nuclear arsenal. Thanks, Curtis. Now, Peter, let me turn it over to you for Mythbuster number two. Well, the, there are a lot of them in the arms control community, but I think one that I find fascinating is the claim that the current modernization of Sentinel, Columbia, Raider plane, cruise missiles is an arms race. And one of the things I find fascinating is every one of those systems is consistent with the New START Treaty. The New START Treaty is described as arms control. In fact, it's considered the cat's meow of arms control, which we extended for five years. And uh, everybody goes nuts when they say, oh, my God, it's coming to an end in 2026, which it will unless it's extended again. But at the same time, they say that the weapon systems we're building consistent with the requirements of the New START Treaty is indicative of the United States leading an arms race. And you can't have it both ways. You can't say that New START is arms control and at the same time say the weapons allowed by New START is an arms race because we're not building the sea launch cruise missile nuclear, which is not within the, the START treaty. And our conventional, our, our theater systems outside of the New START treaty, we're not building any more as far as I know of the gravity bombs in Europe. So I'm always fascinated by the media picks this up, particularly the print media and television. Uh, arms race is a kind of a shorthand for, I don't like what you're building. But the question is, um, the United States is also 40 years after we did this previously. We've waited 40 years. The, the, the last bomber, that we, we killed B-2 in 1997, killed Peacekeeper in 94, and uh, how class stopped in 92. So you take a halfway point, it's 1994, and make a halfway point between 2029 and 2040. That is a 40-year gap between the last modernization and where we're going to start or uh, the midpoint of the, the new one. And my view is, how is building something every 40 years, you know, due to the rapacious profit-seeking aerospace industry. 
which is kind of part of the arms race argument, is that we are really we stretch it out about as far as you can go. Without as you know, as Admiral as General Herensack said, we took a holiday from history and almost fell off the edge of the yeah. planet. So that that is a good, you know, it's uh, it's it's one of those myths that you sort of scratch your head whenever people make the argument and you're like, huh? H- how does that work when you're, you know, normally arms racing and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, didn't, uh, didn't general cotton say, or was it, maybe it was Admiral Richard that said, you know, I'd rather be in, in an arms race than in a war and arms <laughs> racing is, is a lot cheaper than, than war fighting. I, I thought yeah. one of them said that. I could be wrong. Yeah. No, it was Admiral Richard. So I, if I have to maintain deterrence by arms racing, then I'd rather do that than end up not deterring and ending up in a war, particularly a nuclear war, which we've never had. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I know a lot of people don't like him, but the former secretary of defense in the George W. Bush administration, one Donald Rumsfeld once said, weakness is provocative. And I happen to think he's 100% correct. And so my fear is is that it'll be out of weakness and out of a reluctance to pace, you know, a Russian, a Chinese, or both Russia, China, and North Korea now, because they said they're going to be a nuclear peer. If we don't pace them, then that that creates that situation that Rumsfeld's talking about. Curtis, you wanted to jump in? Yeah, you know, I want to add to that, uh, Peter. It's, it's a great, you know, the arms, the arms race fallacy, right? Uh, they blame America first crowd uh, that says that the action reaction spiral arms race is, is at fault. The, the challenge here is, is that we know that Putin is, you know, describes uh, his modernization is 86% complete <laughs> after Admiral Richard said it was 85% in a congressional testimony. And, uh, and, 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 and we haven't even started. I mean, we're barely off the, off the blocks, right? So if, if the action reaction cycle is true and that every nation just uh, arbitrarily or mechanically reacts to, to whatever we do, well, how come, how come we're not, um, uh, ahead of them in this nuclear modernization issue. And and what does this mean for China's massive, uh, breathtaking uh, expansion uh, that is going on in their program? Uh, what have we done uh, to, yes, to, to, to draw that out? Uh, what new capabilities have we, have we placed China at risk that they would need to uh, uh, quadruple or more their existing capability? So one of the things that fascinates me in this action reaction dynamic is the call for the inaction inaction dynamic, right? The idea that if we don't do something, the adversary won't do anything. I'll point out a statement from the great Keith Payne um, who noted that after the 1972 ABM treaty, right? That general uh, Nikolai Detanov, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. A key player in Soviet arms control, the, uh, 
so that the ABM, uh, when the ABM treaty instead freed the Soviet Union to concentrate its resources on next generation MIRVed ICBMs, just the reverse of the promises of the inaction, inaction narrative. And in fact, when the ABM treaty was signed, there were, the Soviets had about 2,000 warheads. That's right. And, and by, by 20 years later, in 1992, at the end of the Soviet Union, they had over 12,000 warheads and actually, the missile defense 000, systems surrounding Moscow. Actually, 13,300, uh, according to freshman Senator Dan Coates. There we go. During the so, debate over the Start One Treaty. Yes. So we, we, we see that, that the inaction, inaction me- mechanism doesn't work. Look at the 2010 NPR, Nuclear Posture Review, uh, where we, they, we hoped that we would lead the way. Uh, instead, we have uh, arguably uh, one and maybe two new nuclear powers uh, when it's all said and done. So let me offer uh, what what's what I think is a myth. And I know this is going to be pretty shocking, so I want you to just sort of grab hold of your desks. Right, I'm strapping in. But um, counter to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists and other publications, I just want to say that deterrence is not white supremacist theory. I know that sounds, um, that's, you know, something you probably never heard before. We've seen, we've had a lot of writing here lately to, to, to claim that nuclear deterrence realism is, is premised in white supremacy. And, um, I, I will just say that that is in fact a myth. And, uh, you know, it's, I would think that people would understand that deterrence protects, you know, everybody, regardless of race, gender, sexual preference, uh, pronouns. It it doesn't care. And it protects everybody. And if it was so, you know, racially motivated, I wonder why both the Chinese and the North Koreans have adopted it. Uh, which they have their own very clear theories of, I mean, the Russians, you know, they're, they're Europeans, but the Chinese and the North Koreans are not. And yet they have adopted it. They, they, they've never, you know, I read what they write. They've never said, Hey, you know, we've, we've sort of dealt with the white supremacy portion of, of deterrence. And and we're still, we're going to take this other part. I've never seen those, those writings. So there, there's probably, a complete fallacy that's hanging in there that deterrence is in fact, you know, undergirded by white supremacist ideology. Well, much of deterrence theory is born of Sun Tzu. um, And um, uh, because it's a, it's a theory that's applicable. The Pakistanis garner nuclear capability to deter the Indians uh, because Right. Uh, the, the desire to survive and be independent uh, and sovereign transcends all of those demographic things that you identified. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would submit to you that it's it's more theories of psychology, of basic human psychology, rather than right. white supremacist theory that explains nuclear deterrence, because 
you know, the idea of, I mean, I granted he's Greek, but the idea of fear, honor, and interest that, that, that old dead, that old dead white guy, Thucydides. Yeah. And, you know, we, there's a pretty good rationale behind the effects of prospect theory, you know, Kahneman and Tversky and their focus on our rational overvaluation of fear and avoiding losses that I think is also, you know, critical to explaining it. But for anybody who's familiar with sort of any real white supremacist ideology or theory or whatever, it doesn't really comport with deterrence or deterrence theory. So I would have to say that is, and that was not a myth six months ago. I would have Mm -hmm. said existed because I didn't know people actually made that claim until the last three or four months. And so therefore I would submit that's number three. Uh, Well, so the bulletin, the atomic scientist has had a couple pieces, but uh, you know, this idea that we're going to take what is a traditional theory that was sort of, there were idealists who were the traditional disarmament crowd. And then there were the realists who were the proponents of nuclear arsenals and the the realist perspective. We've gone pretty far afield to say, well, it's really all about, you know, white supremacy. And so we're really getting far afield. And, and I can only say that, you know, as I look at the authors who tend to be writing this stuff, they tend to be writing from positions where they have no real practical or relevant experience in the actual field. And so perhaps that's how you can, can make these assertions that, you know, make some of us chuckle. Um, I've got one more uh, myth buster here, and then we can give it to, to Peter to, to uh, send us out. Is that all right, Adam? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah, so let's throw out here. So there's a, a myth, uh, and this is pretty prevalent in the disarmament community as well, that we can deter without nuclear weapons, that with our conventional capability, that we can we can do this, right? We don't need all those nasty nuclear weapons um, to do that. And I would, um, there are many ways to counter that myth, Um uh, and I'm just going to pick a couple of them in the interest of time. One of them is uh, is uh, is cost. I know we said we weren't going to talk about money since we we went after it, but this is a different framework of this. So just looking at the example of um, one um, B sixty one twelve bomb. All right, uh, these are what we might consider non strategic nuclear weapons. Um, Russia may view them differently, uh, but these are are, are, are lower yield, uh, not low yield, but lower yield uh, bombs that were modified over the last 10 years to a tune of about $28 million a piece. Now, $28 million a piece is, is, is a lot of money um, uh, for a single bomb. I, I give you that. Um, but if you're going to get somewhere in the ranges of, say, 50 kilotons of yield, you have to think about the destructive capability in that one single bomb as the deterrent threat, right? It has to be something that the adversary can say, yeah, I might not survive that. And that will become, that becomes, that plays in the prospect theory and becomes that, that deterrent effect. 
Well, if I wanted to replace that 50 kilotons of yield with, say, Moabs, the mother of all bombs, the biggest conventional bomb we have, how many would it take? So, you know, I've run the math. Each one of those bombs costs about $16 million a piece, right? 28, 16, okay? And those bombs have about 22,000 pounds or a 0.011 kiloton yield, which means I would need 4,545 of those bombs <laughs> to match one B-61. Okay, now these bombs are huge. They can't be carried on bombers or on jets. So they have to be carried in the backs of cargo aircraft, which are highly vulnerable. And then, uh, so the cost of those bombs, $28 million versus $73 billion, billion for that same 50 kilotons of yield. Okay, so the idea that we could uh, do this cheaper without nuclear weapons is a complete myth. And I'm not even adding in all the extra aircraft capability that we would need to have to get those bombs to their target, which goes to the second point of this myth would look so provocative that it would bring, it would necessarily bring on the war that we were trying to prevent. Nations would be so fearful of an American conventional capability and the credibility to use it for regime change, that nations would definitely find that to be most provocative. I would tell you, Adam and you, Peter, that what Putin fears today is not the American nuclear arsenal. It is the American conventional arsenal. And every time we say that we are going to build more conventional weapons at and in, in an attempt to deter, they are not hearing the altruistic idea that we want to not have nuclear weapons. What they're hearing is, is that we're building more war capacity to take them on, which makes them draw fear to want to have more nukes themselves. We encourage that very problem by following that myth. Completely agree. Completely agree. Plus we just don't have the, no magazine depth for this. Right. There's a long colloquy between Bruce Blair and Joan Rolfing and Congressman Rogers and Congressman Turner on exactly this subject because Congressman Turner reacted to Bruce Blair saying, I would use conventional weapons in response to a nuclear attack. And Congressman Turner said, well, what if they hit you again with nuclear weapons? Both Bruce Blair and Joan Rolfing said, I would still only use conventional weapons in return. And Turner came back and said, would you have any conventional weapons left? Yeah, yeah so. exactly. See, see, this is why we get to the point that these are not serious strategists. Uh, not, no disrespect to, to the late Bruce Blair um, in that uh, in the work that he's done. But th- these are nuclear weapons or political weapons, right? They're not necessarily military weapons per se, like a conventional weapon is. And so when your when your decision making is overly influenced by your ideology, um, then you get forced into these, well, it doesn't matter how many times I get nuked, I am not going to respond. I'm not sure that that's a credible response. I don't think the adversary would believe that that's a credible response. And, uh, And I go back to, you know, Reagan's great speech in 64, when he said, there is one way to end all of this, and that is to surrender and to give up, right? Uh, so if you want to capitulate and conciliate to the, to the Russians and the Chinese, 
that's how we can do it. We can give up the nukes and uh, and do that. I guess that's an option. So, Peter, we're just about out of time, but I wanted to give you the last word in terms of offering offering up another myth. Well, the one that I'm particularly interested in is it's addressed by a one-day hearing that Senator Fulbright had with Jim Schlesinger about counterforce strategy doesn't work as not necessary. And that is we can blow up a bunch of cities or, as McNamara said, a third of the population of the Soviet Union and 75% of its industry. And Schlesinger argued that it was I use less weapons to take out their military capability than I do trying to blow up all that industry and all those people. Plus, the industry and the people don't launch back at us and kill us. It's the weapons that do, the missiles, that once you take those out, what's remaining is so small is the Russians could not engage in the hegemonic behavior that they would do because that's why they attacked in the first place was to get us out of the way. And the whole point of counterforce is to degrade their military so they no longer can act as a military hegemon. And I don't, it's fascinating to me. That's, again, that was part of Ellsberg's last interview. He went into detail about um, how it was just illogical and irrational to have a counterforce capable strategy. And it was, it was kind of interesting in that if you look at global winter, Sagan said that what was burning was the cities. And he said that will put so much soot up in the air that the sun won't be able to get through and we'll all uh, freeze. But the question in my mind is, isn't that counterpopulation, countervalue strategy, exactly what the arms controllers advocate as opposed to counterforce? Because if I blow up a silo in in Montana, am I going to put that much carbon up in the air? Or if I take out Kings Bay or or banger, which I only need what one nuke will do the whole job, and then I got three bomber bases: Whiteman, uh, Minot, and Barksdale. What does it cost to take those out? And that's it. Uh, and uh, and the silos out in the cornfields. But if I blow up New York, Los Angeles, Atlanta, Philadelphia, and uh, you know Phoenix, I'm burning the city up, and that produces all that carbon that goes up in the air and the soot, which Carl Sagan said was what causes nuclear winter. But and so but won't that that that's a good thing because then that'll offset the global warming and then we can reach the well, optimum earth's temperature. Adam, at, the time, at the time Mr. Sagan wrote this during the Reagan administration, his comment was that even a small number of nuclear weapons would cause nuclear winter. And I got the Science magazine article and I was told by General Welch Find every footnote in that article and find those articles and get every footnote in those articles and stack them up and read every single one of them and give me a report. And it all came down to Carl Sagan's research of dust storms on Mars. That's all. It was circular. Everybody who he cited, everybody wrote about this. They all came back to his early studies of dust storms on Mars. And those studies said that heat from the Mars surface could not get up through the dust storm and therefore baked the surface so that it burned. And that's why the planet has no vegetation and has no, uh, it's so hot. Exactly the opposite of his theory on global 
but he inverted it. He said, now it's not that the sun gets captured by the blanket of soot. It's the sun can't get through the blanket because of the blanket of soot. And it's recently come out where the same group of people said um, that if Pakistan and India went to war and they only used 200 warheads, that they would cause enough nuclear winter to kill three and a half billion people. Yeah. And that's more than the people in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh. But it was basically don't use any nuclear weapons because it'll all kill us all anyway. But it's fascinating to me. Why then do you advocate a counter city doctrine, which will in fact burn more soot and create more carbon in the air than any counterforce capability? Ah, oh, it's all full of uh, challenging. Well, that's the beauty of nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence, right? Uh, nuclear war cannot be won and therefore should not be fought is, is essentially why they exist for deterrence, right? The, 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 the fear of all of that means we won't go there. And that helps to control escalation. True, but when you take them off the table, Curtis, you're basically saying your deterrent is a bluff. Right. That's correct. And, and to me, that's more dangerous than yeah. wringing your hands and saying, well, you know, I don't know whether I'll use them. Okay, fine. But when you take them off the table by saying any response, and that's what Jake right. Sullivan did in his speech at the Arms Control Association. Absolutely. Ago, where he said, we're not going to use build more nuclear weapons to counter China. We're going to build better conventional weapons right. to counter so, China. That's right. And that's what he did. He told Putin, we're going to build more things to kill you with rather than to make peace with. <laughs> he elevated the, well, the threat is, we pose. It is what worries him. That's for sure. Adam yeah. was right about that. So, <laughs> well, fortunately, uh, you know, not not everybody who helps make policy in Washington came from Boston or one of the uh, schools up there. So there are some people from flyover country who uh, eventually make their way to DC and uh, are, are fairly reasonable in, in the things that they think and, and do. So with that, unfortunately, gents, we're out of time. So thanks uh, Peter for joining us. Thanks Peter for being here. And thanks to you, the listeners. And of course, as always, We want to remind you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to this week's The Nuclear View. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 501c3 organization. We are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and of our national deterrence. We occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's asknids, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrence, one word, dot com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. 
Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.